It took a bit longer than expected, but the Supreme Court has finally handed down all its decisions and can now enjoy summer recess. Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the nation's top bench by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me now from New York is Law360 editor-at-large, Nadia Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. I have to say, it's it's almost hard to know where to start <laughs> today. There's a lot to go uh, over, yeah. <laughs> lot to go over. And, I, you know, there's a lot to unpack with the Trump financial documents cases that came down finally today. And we're going to get to that later, along with some uh, at least one other opinion that the court handed down this week. Um, but before that, I guess we should talk about Chief Justice Roberts, uh, who was in the hospital back in June. Who knew? This guy just cannot stay out of the headlines for the life of him, <laughs> whether it's his votes <laughs> on the court or falling at his country club, which we learned about from uh, an exclusive scoop reported on by the Washington Post, but that the Supreme Court did confirm in a statement that Roberts spent the night in the hospital on June 21st, unbeknownst to basically everyone. Um, he had suffered a fall uh, while at the country uh, at the Chevy Chase uh, Country Club, according to the Washington Post, and had to receive sutures. Uh, one witness told the newspaper that his face was covered in blood. Now, again, oh nobody knew about this at the time, but uh, it which was... is surprising because often the, I feel like this court has particularly been very good about, like you know giving updates on the health of the justices. Right. I mean, we pretty much learn every time um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has a health event, has to be hospitalized for for whatever reason. But but in this case, Chief Justice Roberts kept it under wraps, and it wasn't until the Washington Post actually reported on it, um, you know, interviewing some some eyewitnesses there that it, that it came to light. But I, this is one that maybe we would have, like, known about had it not been for the pandemic, because you could have potentially seen the Chief Justice with sutures on his face as the court is, you know, come, is sitting on the bench and announcing its opinions. But I guess just another way in which we don't really have access to the court these, that much these days. Yeah, I'm hoping it's not that bad, the sutures, but, uh, you know, but you're right. It's it's such a very different atmosphere this year for the end of the term. Uh, just everything feels different. Like, first off, we're in, like almost towards the middle of July. And right. We're finally yeah. done. Yeah. Usually by this time, uh, you know, uh, the justices have kind of decamped for their, you know, summer lectures and things. But uh more to the point, like at the end of the Supreme Court term, it's like there's a there's a buzz in the air that just isn't the same when you're kind of sitting around waiting for the court's opinions on its website. Like the press room is crowded. They have this tradition. I don't know if you've seen this, Natalie, but it's it's called the running of the interns where you have interns for the big broadcast networks that, you know, come to the court with like their running shoes on and, and, and wait outside the public information office for the actual like slip opinions. And then they like sprint across the Supreme Court oh plaza to hand them to the uh, TV broadcasters who read them aloud. So no more of that. Um, of course, and no, no more. more- Ruth Bader Ginsburg Jabbits. I know. Which I actually I know. kinda miss seeing those. <laughs> I know. Yeah. That's how you knew there was gonna be like a big a big descent coming when she had her little uh descent jabot, I, I think maybe it's pronounced. I I I've only seen it written, but <laughs> um Well, we're gonna be talking about uh one of those descents later on. Uh I, but first uh we have to talk about Trump taxes. I guess I case. guess we should get to the big <laughs> the big stuff this week. So speaking of Trump taxes, okay, that was the big story out of this week um, that we have all been waiting for now anxiously since the cases were argued during the May teleconference session. So 
The takeaway is that by a 7-2 vote, the Supreme Court refused to throw out a subpoena uh, from the Manhattan District Attorney seeking nearly 10 years of President Trump's business in tax records. But at the same time, the court ruled for President Trump in a similar case involving subpoenas from various congressional committees. Uh, The Supreme Court said that there was significant separation of powers concerns and sent the case back down to a lower court that had originally sided with the House panel. So kind of a mixed bag. Um, It was, you know, a classic Roberts compromise here where one case went the other one way and the other case went the other way. But, But nevertheless, a huge ruling. And not a super divided ruling, like seven two. Like I kind, I, I think a lot of us kind of thought it might divide more narrowly. Um, but but what are the big political implications here? So the big political landscape is that both cases are going to continue to be litigated in the lower courts, and it is unlikely that the public's going to get access to these records. Um, you know, this president has been the subject of investigations by these various House committees and also the Manhattan District Attorney's Office over everything from hush money payments uh, paid during in the lead up to the 2016 election, and also just things like the Congress wanted to investigate potential foreign interference and maybe the president's ties to certain, uh, you know, foreign powers um, or even the president's business following some testimony from his longtime former lawyer, Michael Cohen. So the the, the big takeaway is that even though, you know, the, the Manhattan DA case kind of went against Trump, that's a that's a grand jury proceeding. And, it, you know, voters are probably not going to get access to the president's tax returns or any other financial documents involving the Trump organization or his family members, you know, ahead of the November election. Now, we kind of talked about this last week, but this has seemed like it's Robert's world uh, lately. And he ended up writing both opinions. It is absolutely Roberts's court. <laughs> I mean, there is just no question uh, about his outsized influence on the court since, you know, Kennedy has stepped down. Um, I think a really good example of that is the fact that these were not bare majorities, as you mentioned. These were seven to two rulings. So not only did he get buy-in from the liberal justices, but also Trump's own appointees, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, voted in the majority in both of these cases. It was only Alito and Thomas that actually dissented. So Roberts seems to have the cards here in in yet another major case um, that court watchers and the broader you know political world have been watching here. So let's dive into the first case, which is the one involving the New York grand jury subpoena. What exactly did the court say there? So in a nutshell, the Supreme Court rejected Trump's argument that he is, quote, absolutely immune from a grand jury subpoena while in office. And the court cited 200 years of precedent going back to Chief Justice John Marshall in the early 1800s. So Trump, just to refresh everybody's memory, he had argued that Article 2 of the Constitution and the Supremacy Clause gave him immunity from being subject to state criminal proceedings. Uh, His lawyers, along with the Department of Justice, basically said that this was going to lead to harassment of the president um, by the 2,000 plus district attorneys uh, across the country who were just going to like deluge him with subpoenas and things like that. But writing for the majority, Chief Justice Roberts says, I don't agree with that at all. In fact, it basically contravenes you know, precedent going back to uh, Chief Justice Marshall. And he says, 200 years ago, a great jurist of our court established that no citizen, not even the president, is categorically above the common duty to produce evidence when called upon in a criminal proceeding. We reaffirm that principle today. Yeah, just a side note for some of our listeners. If any of you are Hamilton fans, I strongly suggest you read this this opinion because the history is just fascinating. <laughs> he really dives into a lot of like, the details and I 
frankly loved it. Yeah, he goes into, you know, the, the, the case that he cites that's 200 years old was actually the trial of Aaron Burr. So, you know, yes. not a name that many Hamilton fans will like to hear. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, it, it was the treason trial of Aaron Burr when Chief Justice Marshall upheld his subpoena to uh, President Thomas Jefferson at the time. So we're really reaching back in time for this principle. Yeah, but, but Roberts, you know, he, he then, I think, continues to draw the line through, like, more modern cases, Nixon and Clinton. And, you know, while a lot of the the examples he gave were all federal cases, he said, even though this is, like, a state subpoena, a state criminal subpoena, you know, our history sh- shows that a president responding to subpoena, you know, it is not an undue burden. You can figure it out, you know. You, you shouldn't be just completely immune to Absolutely. that subpoena. I mean, I think that's the core holding, right? So the in, in the in the case of Burr, it involved um, a federal case, federal case um, in, involving a subpoena to the president. And this case involved a state case. So it basically extended that 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 those precedents to, you know, a state jury grand jury a state grand jury investigation. So that will be the the governing precedent going forward. Yeah. And I think even Justice Thomas and Alito, who were dissenting um, from the majority judgment, kind of agreed on that point that it is, that the president is not immune to subpoena powers, basically. Um, but they took issue to the way in which there's a, like a certain standard that the state has to meet, basically, right? Yeah, I, I think Alito writes, you know, the court's decision, he th- says it threatens to impair the functioning of the presidency and provides no real protection against the use of the subpoena power by the nation's, you know, 2,000 plus prosecutors, essentially echoing the point that Trump's lawyers in the Department of Justice made earlier in the case. Okay, so let's turn to the other opinion that was related to the subpoena, but this one involved congressional subpoenas. That's right. Uh, So it was the same breakdown as the grand jury case. It was a 7-2 ruling. Roberts once again writes the opinion. Thomas and Alito once again dissent. But that's kind of where the similarities end because the Supreme Court in this case actually rules for Trump and says that unlike a grand jury proceeding, um, a subpoena battle between Congress and the president implicates significant separation of powers issues that the D.C. Circuit in this case failed to consider when it basically upheld the subpoenas to the president. So once again, this involves several committees that are investigating Trump for, uh, you know, things like foreign interference in the election or, you know, the, the Trump organization itself. And basically a lower court had upheld those subpoenas. Now the Supreme Court sends the case back down to the lower courts to, you know, re-examine these separation of powers issues because it says, you know, we've never actually weighed in on this issue of a congressional subpoena um, for inform- to a third party for information from the president and didn't really, wasn't really satisfied. The majority wasn't really satisfied with the analysis that the D.C. Circuit um, had when, you know, it, it ruled in favor of the House Below, I, I should just point out that this is once again a case where the liberal justices and the two Trump appointees join with uh, Chief Justice Roberts for his majority opinion here. So how did the House respond to this? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that they're going to continue to press their case in the lower courts and try to you know, win at the D.C. Circuit under this new standard uh, you know, involving separation of powers issues. But more to the point, Pelosi was very gratified that at least in the Manhattan DA case, she says that it affirms that the president is not above the law. And that was a holding that Trump's own appointees held. So they were pretty satisfied with at least that portion of the ruling. But President Trump, of course, was definitely not. Yeah, I, th- I thought I saw a tweet go out 
There was a tweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there was another big case this week, uh, which I think the Trump administration was happier about the result. Absolutely. Natalie, do you want to set this one up for us? We've been talking about this um, earlier in the term, but basically it involves the Trump administration's regulation regarding contraception coverage under the Affordable Care Act. Can you set that up for us? So basically in another seven to two split, which certainly seemed to be the uh, popular split this week, um, the court upheld the Trump administration's rules that allowed employers with religious or moral objections to birth control to refuse to provide coverage to their workers. You know, this is another big win in the line of religious liberties cases that we've seen recently. Just last week, we saw the Espinosa tax case, which granted certain tax privileges to religious organizations. And, you know, looking back to cases like Hobby Lobby, it was also a big case, I think, for employers and for health insurers. Um, you know, the government estimates that this uh, would deprive between 70,000 to 126,000 people of access to contraception through their employer provided health insurance. That sounds like a, a big deal. Um, so yeah. can you just walk us through, Natalie, you know, how we got to this point in the case? What, what are some of the legal issues? Just kind of break everything down for us. So this case has an extremely long administrative history that I am not going to get fully into. But, <laughs> sounds good. Um, just, just fair warning to anyone who wants that. I'm sorry, I'm not. Um, it's but public the record. Strokes. They can look it up if they, if they want to torture themselves. <laughs> But the broad strokes uh, for this particular line of litigation, it started with the Little Sisters of the Poor, this religious organization um, that took issue with a previous exemption. Um, So under the Obama administration, there was an exemption to religious organizations from providing contraception. Um, But you had to self-certify as a nonprofit religious institution, which the Little Sisters of the Poor and others similarly situated, you know, said it rendered them complicit in providing contraceptive coverage because it wasn't just an opt-out, but it was kind of a permission slip for others to provide the coverage because they weren't doing it. Right, right, right. Yeah. So they basically said, we don't want to do it. And then they, it would kick it out to, you know, I guess the government to fill in and subsidize that 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 coverage. Exactly. So there was like this, you know, give and take with interim rules and, and a finally a final rule. And basically the final rule expanded the exemption so that there wasn't this shift in costs to the insurers. Along the way between the interim rules and the final rules, Pennsylvania and then New Jersey sued the government um, over the shift and over this broadened exemption, um, arguing that it basically invalidated the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate, that the departments lacked statutory authority to make these kind of broad exemptions. So what was the shift? So it went from being this opt-out situation um, where they would kick it out, I guess the insurance. To the insurers. Okay, to to the insurers. I misspoke earlier. I said it was to the government, but it was to the insurers. And so the Trump administration um, changes this system, shifts it so that I guess any employer or a qualified employer with religious or moral exemptions to a birth control doesn't actually have to do anything, um, just claim this exemption, essentially. Exactly. And Justice Thomas, writing for the majority, said that the plain reading of the Affordable Care Act gives the Health Resources and Service Administration, you know, the agency in charge of 
promulgating rules over this, the broad discretion to create this kind of exemption. Um, and he says, you know, the policy concern of the impact just can't justify supplanting the text's plain meaning. Um, so this decision reverses a Third Circuit opinion and remands the case back to dissolve the nationwide preliminary injunction, which we've talked a whole lot about over this term. Uh, those have been very popular. And so this decision basically says you got to you got to take away the injunction. Take away the injunction and let the Trump administration continue to provide this broad exemption to religious employers, which you said up top is a big deal because it's not like the insurance is just going to kick in one way or the other if they're not involved. No, this will actually lead to the loss of contraception coverage from anywhere between 70 and 126,000 workers for some of these employers. Exactly. And, you know, Justice Alito, who joined the majority here and concurred, um, actually wrote that he would have gone further and held that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, would have actually required this religious exemption. So not just that it's like allowed, but that it would be required. I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the, the votes of the two liberal justices um, who joined the majority here. Uh, Kagan and Breyer, obviously Sotomayor and Ginsburg were the dissenters. But any insight as to why they joined the majority opinion? Or maybe like, is there anything in Ginsburg's dissent that could shed light on on what the issue is here? So I, I think for me, it was really interesting to see Kagan's concurrence. Um, she came to the same place as the majority, but in a very different way. Um, and she, she's, I, I kind of like loved her opinion writing. Um, you know, she was, she's just very frank and said that while the majority and the dissent seem so sure about the reading of the Affordable Care Act providing this exemption, she's like, try as I might, I do not find that kind of clarity in the statute. Um, she's like, you know, sometimes when I squint, I read it, is it? providing all the coverage other times you know i see it as putting the agency in charge of only what the question is not the who as in you know so ultimately though she lands in that chevron deference was built for cases like this Mm. and we just have to give the agency the deference to promulgate these rules so it was she's deferring to the agency here that's really interesting but but i also understand that she kind of cracks the door just a little bit to say that even though she thinks that they do have the statutory authority, there might be another possible way you could frame this case that she might not be so sympathetic to the government. Yes. She questions whether the exemptions would survive a challenge to their reasoned decision-making, which we've seen with DACA recently. Um, and, And she says that this is an issue that remains open for the lower courts to address. Of course, Kagan and Breyer alone couldn't provide that majority, um, and it would have to be one of the conservative justices who, who would agree. But uh, it sounds like this case is going to uh, continue trickling along. Uh, so that pretty much wraps up the major rulings this week. But uh, turning to some of the cases that maybe got lost in the shuffle, turns out that Frodo Baggins is unlikely to prevail as a dark horse candidate in the, in the 2020 election, which is something that was kind of on Justice Thomas's mind in the elector case that was decided this week. Um, and that's because the court unanimously upheld the rights of states to punish so-called rogue electors, 
Um, you know, these are people that are appointed to cast the ballots on behalf of, you know, the voters in the Electoral College. And the Supreme Court said that states can punish rogue electors who vote for someone other than their party's nominee for president in the Electoral College. Uh, this is obviously going to be disappointing to Lord of the Rings fans who may think <laughs> that he, Frodo, had what it took to, to lead the, the free world. Uh, but the Supreme Court said that it didn't want to sow you know, further chaos into what will undoubtedly be a, a pretty tense election this fall. Yeah, and just a few minutes before we started recording, and what might have been the last, like, a big move by the court for this term, uh, it agreed to hear some big cases involving agency power, one involving the Federal Housing Finance Agency and another involving the Federal Trade Commission, which I'm sure we are going to dig deep into next term. And with that, the Supreme Court pretty much closes the book on its very action-packed, wild, bumpy, historic, however you want to call it, (laughs) October 2019 (laughs) term. So barring any unforeseen surprise retirement news today or over the next week or so, that should pretty much do it. And we should be back next week for a kind of a look back on some of the big moments from the term, right, Natalie? Don't even put it into the air, that retirement stuff. <laughs> this, this, this term's been crazy enough. But yes, we will uh, We will be back, though, next week uh, for that one last episode to wrap everything up. And uh, hopefully we'll have a special guest, maybe two. We'll see. In the meantime, thanks so much, Natalie, for uh, talking with some of these major cases with me. Thanks so much, Jimmy. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporter this week, Emily Brill. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.